Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the University of Bath Thought Train podcast. Today we'll be bringing you three fascinating talks from some of our incredible researchers originally recorded at the Discovery Lecture Series held in central London on Thursday the 2nd of November. Good evening ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Gavin Maggs and I'm the Director of Development and Alumni Relations uh, and my role at this moment is, is rather brief. So welcome to uh, the Discovery Series. This is the third in the series. Um, very briefly, please could I ask you not to ask questions during the talks. Uh, the academics will be outside with some colleagues afterwards at the reception when they're very willing to take your questions. That will allow the academics to ensure that they keep to their 15-minute target. I'm looking at you, Nick. <laughs> so... Uh, if you can now please join me in welcoming our host for the evening, the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research, Professor Jonathan Knight. Jonathan. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, it is slightly disconcerting to hear the 15 minutes being referred to as a target, I have to say. <laughs> Normally, these, um, these sorts of events, uh, you know, if it's at, a, at an academic conference, you just know that you've got to have a fierce chair up at the front. But obviously, this is slightly different. Welcome. Welcome indeed. It's very good to have you here. Thanks very much for coming. As, as Gavin said, this is the third event in our discovery series for alumni and friends. You will know that universities have to take responsibility for tackling some of the world's biggest challenges. They have to work to bring new meaning and understanding to the world around us. And that's one of the things that engages us at the University of Bath. And so in that sense, we're very like other universities. But I think one of the things that makes us stand out is the approach which we have, which is a collaborative approach, a multidisciplinary approach. And I think that the success of that approach is evident in our achievements of the last year. So without further ado, I'll introduce the first speaker of the e evening, Dr. Nick Longrich from the Department of Biology and Biochemistry. Nick. OK, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about the high diversity of small dinosaurs preceding the end Cretaceous mass extinction. To summarize what I'm going to talk about here today, I'm looking at the extinction of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. This is the event that wiped out the dinosaurs and gave rise to the modern world, the modern biota. And dinosaur diversity has been hypothesized to gradually decline up to the extinction of the dinosaurs, suggesting a gradual extinction of the dinosaurs. However, the diversity of dinosaurs from the very end of the Cretaceous period when they went extinct may be underestimated, and this may be particularly true for small dinosaurs, which have very limited preservation potential. So what I did is fairly simple. I went to a bunch of museums in North America, and I looked at isolated bones and teeth to try to get a better picture of the diversity of small dinosaurs from the end of the Cretaceous. So the question I'm interested in here tonight is, why did dinosaurs go extinct? And this is actually a pretty fundamental evolutionary question that cuts to some very fundamental problems in evolutionary biology. Dinosaurs dominated terrestrial ecosystems for more than 100 million years. Why was a group that was so successful for so long, suddenly, why did it suddenly disappear at the end of the Cretaceous period? And it's not just the dinosaurs that vanished at this point. We also see the disappearance of animals like pterosaurs, uh, the last of the plesiosaurs in the oceans, giant marine lizards called mosasaurs, the ammonites, lots of invertebrates, lots of plants suddenly go extinct. And why is this? And this actually goes back to a fundamental debate in evolutionary biology about the origins of diversity, the origins of the diversity all around us. Is it the result primarily, exclusively of gradual processes, or does catastrophe play a major role in driving the evolution of life on Earth? 
and this goes back to the 19th century. Uh, Cuvier, who was the discoverer of extinction, extinction was not always recognized, it had to be discovered, and Cuvier discovered it and invented paleontology. And he looked at fossils like this giant mosasaurus, this extinct sea lizard from 66 million years ago, and he looked at this thing and said, nothing like this could exist today or we would have found it. This animal is extinct. And it seems obvious, but no one had done this in a satisfactory way up until this time point. And he thought that catastrophes might play a major role in wiping out species. And this might make sense in terms of the context in which Cuvier was operating, the culture of the time. Cuvier lived through the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, the rise of Napoleon. So he's kind of used to seeing the established order swept away. Darwin, on the other hand, lived in a time of relative peace and prosperity and stability, and he invoked gradual processes as explaining the origins of biodiversity. He looked around at everyday processes operating around uh, operating that he, uh, he saw during his nature walks, processes like competition, predation, mate choice, the action of climate, and he suggested that these processes, everyday processes, given millions upon millions of generations, millions of years to operate, could create and destroy diversity over huge time periods and lead to the origination of taxa and their extinction. Now, Darwin's approach is very, very intuitive. The problem is the human experience is so limited. We are only on the planet for around 100 years, and yet the planet has been here for billions of years. And over vast periods of time, geological periods of time, highly improbable events become probable. Once in a million year events are going to occur on average once every million years when you're looking at spans of hundreds of millions of years. These rare extreme things happen. And over the past 100 years, there's been an increasing recognition that Darwin was wrong and mass extinctions do occur. Paleontologists have sketched out the diversity of life over the past 500 million years and have found at least five periods in that time when we've had a rapid worldwide loss of diversity with over 50% of all species on the planet disappearing. And geologists have then been able to show that these disappearances of species coincide with severe environmental disruptions, catastrophes, including massive volcanic eruptions, severe ice ages, and asteroid impacts. One of the most severe events and the most recent event, and therefore the one with the best fossil record, occurs 66 million years ago. And this is the Cretaceous Paleogene, or KPG, mass extinction, and this is the extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs. And if you track microfossils, which have a really good record, you can track them millimeter by millimeter through the rock, marine microfossils like plankton or, or pollen, and you can trace them up to the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary where they disappear. Now, the KPG boundary is not like a geographic boundary. It's not an abstraction. It's not a dotted line we draw there. It is a physical structure. It's a thin layer of clay that's present all over the world, from Italy to New Zealand to Antarctica. You can go and find this clay. And when geologists looked at this, they found it had elevated levels of iridium. Iridium is very, very rare on Earth, but it's very common in extraterrestrial objects. And they realized that to get this much iridium, you would need an asteroid, a huge asteroid, 10 kilometers in diameter. This was thought to be completely impossible, but they later found the crater in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. It's called the Chicxulub Crater. It's over 100 miles across. And it's thought that this crater, uh, when it was formed, debris and soot liberated by this impact was shot into the high atmosphere, and it blocked out sunlight, causing a, a shutdown of photosynthesis and widespread global cooling for two years. There was no photosynthesis. And this caused the collapse of the food chain. And so this hypothesis uh, proposes a catastrophic extinction of the dinosaurs. However, paleontologists proposed that maybe it wasn't quite as catastrophic as we thought. So if you look here at the very, right here, before, about 10 million years before the extinction, this is the Campanian period. You have a peak in dinosaur diversity, and then a decline. Here again, a decline and a decline. 
And they proposed that in the last 10 million years, there is a decline in dinosaur diversity. By extension, if they're following terrestrial diversity as a whole, there's a decline in, in diversity, and there may actually be some gradual processes going on. So is this really as catastrophic as it looks? The problem here is, is the lack of dinosaurs from the very end of the Cretaceous period actually reflecting a low diversity before the extinction, before the asteroid impact, or simply the lack of dinosaur fossils? So trophy skeletons like this Gorgosaurus here, this amazing skeleton, really mislead us as to what the fossil record really looks like. It rarely looks like this. Most of the dinosaur fossils out there are incredibly scrappy, little bones, little teeth. They're almost always incomplete, and the fossil record is extraordinarily incomplete. This is particularly true of small dinosaurs, which rarely preserve. Uh, they get ground up in streams. Other dinosaurs tend to eat them. Uh, they're difficult to find in the field. And so they have a very incomplete fossil record. And the incompleteness of the fossil record is a major problem. Life is extraordinarily diverse, but a lot of these things are soft-bodied are soft and won't preserve. And only in extraordinary circumstances do these things actually turn into fossils. And the vast majority of the, of the life that has existed over the past 500 million years has left no fossil record whatsoever. And it's not just that a lot of things don't fossilize. We lose data at every step of the way. There are a whole series of things that have to happen for things to end up in our databases so we can analyze them. And if we lose information any step along the way, we're losing information about the past. So first of all, there's the diversity of all life, and only some small subset of that diversity is actually buried and preserved as fossils. Of the things that are buried and preserved as fossils, they then have to be exposed by erosion. The rocks have to be uplifted, weathered away, so that we could potentially walk out there and find them. And only some small subset of the fossilized things are actually exposed for paleontologists to find. Of the things that are exposed, only some small subset are actually discovered by paleontologists and recovered and put into museums. Of the things that go into museums and are recovered, only some of them are actually studied. Of the studied fossils, only some are actually published on and end up in the literature, and then some portion of the literature actually ends up in our databases. So what we end up with here is a very, very selective reading of what used to exist. So we're missing a lot of data. Can we actually get more data on dinosaur diversity from the end of the Cretaceous period, and where would we get it from? So how do we get more data? Preservation is historical. We can't go back in time and cause dinosaurs to be preserved, so we really can't do anything about that. Exposing new rocks is really not practical. We kind of have to let erosion do its work very slowly over thousands or millions of years. That's not very practical. Collecting is very doable but it takes a lot of time. You're talking about decades or centuries to build up a fossil record and fill in these gaps. And it's also very risky. You might find something, you might not. There's another way of looking at it, though, and that's to study existing material. And this is what I would call the Indiana Jones strategy. And so a lot of people that say, well, paleontology, it's like Indiana Jones, right? And I say, well, yeah, but probably not the way you're thinking of it. It's not the adventurous part out in the desert. I, I think of Indiana Jones in terms of like the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they beat the Nazis, they've got the, they've got the Ark of the Covenant, and what happens? They wheel it off into this vast warehouse where it's just lost in obscurity among all these boxes, and it's just lost in, this, in the emptiness of this vast warehouse. And this is actually pretty close to how most museum collections operate. There are amazing things stashed away in there, the amazing treasures just waiting to be found that have been stuck away in there, and nobody even knows they're there. And so I decided to take the Indiana Jones strategy and go look in these collections for fossils and see what's hiding out in there. So the past 10 years, I've been going through collections in North America where we have the best record of the late Maastrichtian, the end of the Cretaceous, 
looking at 27 different museum collections, just going through drawer after drawer after drawer, trying to find what we've collected but not identified, what are we missing, fossils right under our noses, and some really amazing things have emerged. So what's in there? What did I find? Uh, some pretty amazing things in terms of small dinosaur diversity, which I'll talk about now. So one of the first things I found that was really extraordinary is a member of this group called the Thessalosauridae. These are small plant eaters. Uh, they're kind of like a miniature version of a duck-billed dinosaur. They walk on two legs. They chew plants. And this one is about three or four feet long. It's about the size of, the tur of a turkey. We have never seen anything like this from the end of the uh, Cretaceous period uh, before. It's the first time we've seen something occupying this niche. This fossil had actually been described, but it was misinterpreted. It was interpreted as an animal called Leptoceratops. Uh, the foot seems to be a little more slender. The teeth are different. The skull bones are different. It appears to be a closely related but new species of Leptoceratopsid. This is a dog-sized cousin of Triceratops. These are really incredible little animals called Alvarez saurids. Again, we just have scraps of them. Uh, they have these weird pick-like claws that they appear to use to rip into rotten wood in search of insects, termites, and grubs. Uh, we actually have two different types of claws, suggesting we have two different types of these small feathered dinosaurs called Alvarez saurids. Uh, these are a cool group of dinosaurs. They have these sort of parrot beaks. They're, uh, again, an herbivorous group, closely related to birds. They range from dog size on up to human size. And we have some beaks here. And again, we have two different types, suggesting at least two new species, fragments suggesting perhaps a third. So again, previously unrecognized diversity of small dinosaurs. This is an animal called a Truodontid. Uh, it's kind of like a vegan version of a Velociraptor. It's a raptor, but it has these very coarsely serrated teeth with huge wear facets indicating that it eats plants and not meat. And these teeth indicate a species we haven't previously seen from the end of the Cretaceous period. And then this is one of the most exciting finds. Uh, this is an animal called a Microraptorine. Again, it's related to Velociraptor, but it's kind of like a mini version of Velociraptor. Uh, it's only about three feet long. It weighs about two kilos. And the thumb, thumb bone there is very, very long and skinny. It has very long, skinny fingers, suggesting this animal is good at climbing up into trees. And again, we have not seen a dinosaur occupying this ecological niche at the end of the dinosaur period before. And then this thing is a really extraordinary find. Uh, it's a little foot bone. It comes from about here in the skeleton. Uh, and I compared it to all these different families, and I said, well, it's not an ornithomimid, it's not a trudonid, or canonathid, or an alvarosaurid, or microapterine. I'm like, what the heck is this thing? And then I realized the bone was really heavily vascularized. It has lots of little pores and canals in there for blood vessels, which indicates a very rich vascular network, nourishing, rapidly growing bone. It's not an adult of a small dinosaur. It is a juvenile, a rapidly growing juvenile, of a larger dinosaur. Well, how large? Uh, so I compared this thing closely, and I also find, started finding some teeth that appear to go to this animal. And the structure of the foot, this kind of pit there, is typical of a group called, you may have heard of, called the Tyrannosauridae. Uh, and this little structure there, this little pillar there, is kind of characteristic of a subgroup of the Tyrannosaurids called the Tyrannosaurinae. The most famous Tyrannosaurine, uh, which is known from this time period, is, of course, Tyrannosaurus rex. This is a baby T. rex. Uh, we did a mass estimate on this bone, and we came out with a mass estimate of 2.5 kilograms. It's probably a hatchling just out of the egg. This is the smallest known T. rex. And I have an example of one of the teeth that we identified and pulled out of the collections. You won't be able to see it because it's about the size of a grain of rice. This is one of the front teeth of a baby hatchling T. rex. It's the first time people have recognized this material. 
So in addition to having a high diversity of small adult dinosaurs, we're also starting to see hatchling dinosaurs we didn't see before. So we have a pretty high species richness. We have about 40 different species. Uh, it's much more diverse than previously recognized. It's still not quite as diverse as the Campania about 10 million years earlier, where we have around 75 species. Uh, so is there really a decline? I'm not convinced there is. There are, again, all these sampling issues. But I think more importantly, is species richness really the best way to look at dinosaur, uh, the health of the dinosaur community and the diversity of dinosaurs? I think the more important thing to look at is when you look at all these small, small dinosaurs is we have extraordinary niche occupation. If you look at what the dinosaurs do, not just how many different types there are, but the range of ecologies represented, it's very, very broad. So we have these giant carnivores, little tiny carnivores, fish eaters, insect eaters, lots of small herbivores. They seem to dominate the fauna. Some big herbivores, huge herbivores. This is a titanosaur, a long-necked 50-ton sauropod dinosaur. And they appear to actually represent a wider range of ecologies than we see in the Campanian. I think the other important thing to consider is, does species richness really matter? Uh, there appears to be only one species of triceratops there at the end. Would it have survived the asteroid impact if there were 50? I think that's very unlikely. The problem is that it was very large, it was herbivorous and terrestrial, and nothing occupying this niche survived. So if one species occupying this niche didn't have a chance, why would 50 more species that were vulnerable to extinction because they ate plants, there were no more plants, why would they be more likely to survive? Uh, so I don't think diversity really explains survival. And one, of the, one example of this is the crocodilians, which don't have a lot of species, but they're occupying a niche that saw less extinction, the freshwater predator niche. These guys survive and the dinosaurs don't. So I think the really important thing is not the number of species of dinosaurs, but the range of niche occupation. And the important thing here is the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction appears to have been very selective with respect to niches being occupied. It's selective with respect to body size. Large things like dinosaurs tend not to survive. Small things like lizards and mammals did. With respect to feeding strategy, small insectivores and uh, omnivores tended to survive. With respect to habitat, terrestrial things didn't and freshwater things did. So the key thing here is niche occupation. Can we actually track this? And what I did is I just coded up a bunch of dinosaurs for various features of their ecology, things like body size, their diet, whether they're two-legged or four-legged, threw this into a computer, and it kind of plots out these various species in this sort of eco-space. And you can kind of track the range using this as a proxy for niche occupation. What you'll see here is the end of the Cretaceous period, they occupy a very wide spread of niches, as large or actually larger than the Campanian, so they're actually expanding their niche occupation just before the dinosaur, uh, dinosaurs went extinct. And they're not actually losing any niches before the extinction of the dinosaurs. So in conclusion, uh, the diversity of dinosaurs from the end of the Cretaceous period has been underestimated, especially for small-bodied species. We have new species of things like Leptoceratopsids, Thessalosaurids, Alvarezsaurids, Canaanethids, Trudonids, and Microapterines, revealed by collection study. The niche occupation uh, kind of filled out by these small dinosaurs shows an increase in niche occupation just before extinction. They're not declining. They're doing just fine up until the point the asteroid hits. This is a healthy, diverse dinosaur fauna, and by extension, I think, a terrestrial ecosystem. And this is consistent with a sudden extinction of dinosaurs driven by the Chicxulub asteroid impact. So what are the implications here? Evolution is not just about the slow and steady. Despite or because of their uncommonness, rare extreme events such as asteroid impact can play a major, even defining role in evolution. Unpredictable events such as an asteroid impact, uh, whether the asteroid had hit or narrowly missed, it, missed us, can profoundly alter the evolution of life on Earth. Who would be here if not the asteroid? Probably not us, probably just more dinosaurs.
And uh, I guess I need to wrap this up quickly. I'll briefly touch on uh, some new directions we're going. Uh, we are moving away from the terrestrial ecosystem and now studying similar problems in a marine ecosystem, uh, looking at some fossils from strip mines in North Africa. I said that erosion is kind of difficult to do, but they're kind of doing this for us by creating these huge strip mines in Morocco where they find these amazing uh, fossils. This is a giant marine lizard, and we're building up a picture of the fauna from the latest Cretaceous period in the marine ecosystem in North Africa, trying to track the extinction up to the across the boundary and the recovery in the aftermath. So I would just like to uh, conclude by thanking everyone who helped make this study possible, including the University of Bath and all my collaborators there, and you guys for listening. Next, we hear from Professor Keith Stokes from the Department for Health on how his team's high-tech research is making rugby safer. Well, thanks, Nick. Um, and uh, so my name's uh, Keith Stokes. I'm from the Department for Health. Um, I think uh, giving lectures with uh, some sparkling wine is, could catch on. I may take that one back to the university. Um, I'm going to talk to you today uh, really representing a group of researchers uh, who are mostly focused on trying to prevent injuries in various sporting situations. I'm going to give you two examples of projects that we've been doing over the last seven years or so, uh, where we've tried to have an impact in a sport where the primary risk factor for injury is impact itself, and that is in rugby union. So the first step, really, of trying to prevent injury is to understand the scale of the injury problem itself. And so a lot of our work starts really with injury surveillance. And the Professional Rugby Injury Surveillance Project started in 2002 and has been running continuously ever since. We inherited it from colleagues in 2011. We set up in 2008 the Community Rugby Injury Surveillance Project, and that's been running continuously ever since. And we think that's probably the largest uh, surveillance program in any community sport uh, around the world. We've also done a bit stop-start, uh, some surveillance on youth rugby. And it's interesting because this is an area which has perhaps received the most media attention uh, in recent time and an area that we do need to know more about. And so we hope that our efforts from 2017 onwards become that continuous injury surveillance that we've done with the other levels. And the sorts of numbers we're talking about here, um, the two things we really need to know are how much time people spend exposed to risk. So effectively, we look at that in terms of the number of match hours they play, and then also the number of injuries that actually occur. And so we can see along the bottom there that for the professional game, we have over 100,000 hours of match exposure and over 15,000 injuries. The community game, 175,000 hours of match exposure and 3,000 injuries, and smaller numbers, but still you know, large numbers in reality for the youth game. And we know from this, we can start to compare across these levels. We know roughly how many injuries are likely to occur. So for example, if we take an injury that might keep somebody out of playing or training for rugby for at least seven days, we know that in the premiership each weekend, that there will be one injury that occurs per team that is likely to cause that sort of time loss. At the community level and the youth level, the uh, the uh, averages are around the same, where this would happen one in every three team games. So we'd expect, if we're playing in a team of 15 people, we'd expect one of our players to get injured, uh, to keep them out for a week, um, 
every three days. Now, we can look at all sorts of injuries, and I could talk about this for a long time, but there are two specific injuries that have really caught people's attention over a long time and latterly more recently. So a, the first one, and I think you know, for many people for many years, the injury that they associated with rugby was spinal injuries and associated those with the scrum. And so the first project I'm going to talk about is where we try to tackle that issue. The second one, more recently, is head injuries and particularly concussion. And so the second project that I'm going to talk about is where we seem to have had an effect on reducing uh, concussions. So the first project, this was the Biomechanics of the Rugby Scrum project. This was funded by World Rugby, which is the international governing body for rugby. And this was really uh, based on the understanding from the surveillance data that although these catastrophic spinal injuries are very rare, in those that happened in the scrum mostly happened on the engagement, on that initial impact when the scrum came together. And so what we wanted to do is understand the forces that were involved and ultimately trying to reduce them. And we split this into two phases. The first phase was against scrum machines, and so we went around England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and tested teams from schoolboy teams through to um, international teams and professional teams. And we did that in 36 different teams. Our longest trip, I think, was possibly Aberdeen, or I suppose it depends. Dublin was quite a long way as well. Um, and so this really took quite a long time. We then decided to do it again, but do live scrummaging. And the setup here is what we did when we had live scrummaging. And this allowed us to have video footage from above and from the side. We had uh, pressure sensors, which as you can see, in just in the bottom right-hand corner here, uh, these were on the shoulders of one of the packs. And we also have accelerometers, which we placed at various positions uh, on these players. And all of this is, is reasonably straightforward, but the complicated bit was actually integrating and synchronizing all of these data streams to allow us to make uh, some inferences about what we were seeing. And so in the top right-hand corner there, we see one of our team, Ezio, in mission control, making sure all of this comes together. And so once we started to do this, uh, we tried various different techniques. And we tried about six different techniques, but these two were the most interesting. And I've called the one at the top the old style. And this is, for those of you who follow rugby, this is the old crouch, touch, pause, engage uh, uh, way of engaging at the scrum. And this is characterized really by, uh, at that time, people standing quite a long way apart, as you can see from the top there, and really charging into each other pretty much as hard as they could. And it was all about winning the hit, as people described it. And this, you know, from an injury prevention point of view, doesn't sound like a very good thing. So uh, we thought we may, we may need to try and reduce that. And so we did something that actually is really quite simple when you think about it now. What we did was to say, okay, well, how about if each of the props on either side of the scrum on the front row there has to bind onto their opposite number? Because if they do that, there's only a certain distance apart they can actually be. And if they're closer together, they can't build up as much momentum and therefore the forces and the impact are going to be lower. So a really simple idea, but of course we needed to demonstrate that this might work. And you can see at the bottom there, if you compare these, you can just about see by eye that there are some, uh, some improvements that it looks like. 
But in terms of the, the real findings, what we've got in the middle here is a representative trace of what happens when a scrum engages. And so we see this really high peak to start with, and that's where the actual engagement takes place. And then after that, things, after a little bit of a wobble here, things settle down into a kind of a sustained period of pressure. And given that we knew that this is really where most of the injuries seem to occur, we thought this is the bit that we need to try and change. And when we start to look across all of these levels and all of these players, we saw exactly the same pattern when we compared on the left-hand side here, the old crouch, touch, pause, engage technique, with the crouch, bind, set technique, and that was a 25% reduction in the forces that we saw at the interface between the scrums. And so we thought that's, that's pretty good. We were working very closely with stakeholders, and we were asking all the time what coaches and what players thought, and they were desperate for scrums to stay an integral part of the game. They really wanted to make sure this is an iconic bit of the game that we mustn't ruin. And so we were really pleased, actually, that the sustained force part of the scrum, which isn't associated with injury, stayed about the same. So people were, ex could accept that this change would actually be okay, and they could still scrummage, and they could still do what they like to do. And the data that we collected, this and other data, working closely, as I say, with World Rugby, meant that they were confident enough to change the laws in 2013 with a law variation, and in 2014 with a full law change at all levels of rugby across the world. And that was really exciting for us, and we thought, yeah, fantastic. But actually, as injury prevention researchers, we wanted to know, does that reduce injuries? Well, there are various ways we can look at this, and I've just picked one way of doing it. And we've borrowed some data from our colleagues in South Africa, and the main reason I've done that is because actually, in England and in Wales and in Scotland, this wasn't a major problem. But in other parts of the world, including South Africa, catastrophic injuries in the scrum was quite a big problem. And so in 2008, for example, they had four of these serious spinal injuries which led to permanent disability uh, in that year. Now they, because of the problems that they were having and because they were involved in our project to some extent, they actually went a little bit earlier than World Rugby did and they changed the laws in their country in just before the 2012 season. Now from a statistical perspective, these numbers are very small and so we can't really make any huge inferences, but it looks from these data like we've gone from a situation where between four and seven people might get a catastrophic spinal injury in any given year to between none and two. And that feels like it's a good way forward. And if we look at other data, New Zealand collects some quite good data on all injuries, and they show similar trends. If we look at other data that we've collected through the uh, injury surveillance that I talked about, again, we see similar trends. So this has been uh, a relative success story, and we'll see how things continue in the future. And leading on from this, you will see outside when you look at the exhibition, uh, we're now looking to try to look a little bit further and a little bit deeper into this by trying to understand the mechanisms of injury, which then translates into many other sports and many other settings. And so please come and ask us questions around that. But of course, this affects, thankfully, a relatively small number of people each year. So we were interested in what about the other injuries, the much more common injuries. And we knew from sports that don't involve much collision, like handball and like football, and particularly in younger females, 
that it was possible to reduce lower limb injuries by doing certain exercise programs. And so what we did was to borrow from those exercise programs to see if it would, we could make this work in a sport where there are lots of collisions and in males uh, and where there are lots of upper limb and head and neck injuries. So through a, a combination of evidence-based and expert opinion, we came up with an intervention on the left here, which focused on things like changing direction, but with good quality movement, balance and dynamic balance by jumping uh, in, into position, again, with good quality movement, targeted resistance exercises. This particular one is around the neck exercise and explosive uh, type exercises. But again, the, the focus all the way down the left-hand side was around qu good quality movement. And again, if you look outside, you'll see some of the videos that uh, highlight some of the movements that we're looking for. On the right-hand side, we see our control. And because we wanted to make sure this was a fair comparison, we came up with a warm-up <laughs> that is, might be the typical thing that you would see if you went down to uh, a rugby club or to a school on any given Saturday or Sunday. And so it involved some running and some stretching and some wrestling and things like that. But our job was to compare those two things. And so on this slide, and I apologize, this is a, we start to look at you know, a little bit of data here, and so I'll just explain it. This line here, if anything sits on this line, if these blobs sit on this line, this means that our intervention and our control group are acting in exactly the same way. So anything that sits on that line is exactly the same. Anything that's towards the left of that line means that the intervention group has a lower rate of injuries than the control group. And anything on the right of that line means that anything that the, that the control group have a lower rate of injuries than the intervention group. Now, thankfully, they're on the left, okay? So that's a good start, okay? And our first uh, analysis was to look at everybody. It's called an intention to treat analysis, and we include everybody. So we knew that some of these schools hadn't actually done anything. They hadn't done the intervention at all. We just put them in that group, and we had to analyze them because we said, Okay, this is an intention street analysis. We just look at everybody. But even when we mixed up all of those people that did do it and didn't do it, we still saw a 15% reduction in all injuries. But because this kind of tail sits over here, we, that's not really meaningful. But for concussion, which was one of the injuries that we're really interested in, we saw a 29% reduction in incidents. And that we found to be meaningful. But then we thought, okay, so... What happens for those that actually did what we asked them to do? So we asked them to do it three times a week. In those groups that did either the intervention or the control three times a week, the intervention group did a fan had a fantastic reduction in both overall injuries, about 70%, and concussion at around 60%. And this has been enough for uh, the RFU, again, who we were working closely with, to roll this out across all schools and all clubs across the country. They're starting to roll out this year. And in fact, in a few weeks' time, we're going to present this to World Rugby to start a global rollout of these types of exercises. And our next job is to evaluate that, but also to try and work out how we can do this in other sports. All that remains is for me to thank my fantastic colleagues at Bath, our funders and also our stakeholders and partners in all the research that we're doing. And thank you very much for listening. 
Concluding the talks was Professor Carol Mundell, Head of Physics, who came to share some exciting news about black holes and space-time. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here and an honour to, uh, to follow my esteemed colleagues. I've been fascinated by what they've been talking about. But if I could just ask for the lights to go down a little bit, that would be fantastic. So I'm now um, going to take you a little bit further away from our local environment. Um, and actually, even still matching up with some of the timescales that, that Nick had mentioned and some of the collisions um, that Keith has, has, uh, has touched on, slightly more violent. Um, I, my name is Carol Mandel, and I'm Professor of Extragalactic Astronomy, and it technically means that I'm professor of everything in the entire universe outside of our own Milky Way galaxy. Uh, but for my, but my day job, I actually focus on some of the most energetic phenomena in the universe, black hole-driven explosions. Um, I'm very privileged to have my colleagues here with me tonight from the new Bath Astrophysics Research Group. Uh, the group was established in 2015 when the university took the exciting strategic decision to establish a new astrophysics undergraduate program and research group in the Department of Physics. Um, so I joined in 2015. Um, two of my, my colleagues, um, Carolyn Vilforth and Stein Wutz, joined me from... Um the, well, from the UK and also from Germany, so we have world-leading academics, and they hit the ground running. They were here day one, uh, leading a new program. Uh, the, the students arrived and the staff did too. Um, Dr. Hendrik Van Etten and Dr. Vicky Scowcroft joined uh, one year later. Um, we are a very rapidly growing group. Um, we actually have a really nice growing group of bright PhD students who, again, have come from all over the world, two of whom actually joined us this month and are both alumni-funded, and so those very prestigious scholarship programs really do attract the brightest young people um, to the University of Bath. And of course, our undergraduates also get to do the, uh, the cutting edge research. So this is not everybody. These are the people who were available uh, on Monday this week when it was sunny on campus. Um, so we'll retake these photographs with, with everybody involved. Um, so these are my colleagues that I have here with me tonight. So I do encourage you to go and speak to them about their research. We focus on high energy extragalactic astrophysics and particularly black holes and the uh, impact they have on their environment and where they may have come from. Um, and we put that in a wider context of the evolution of stars and galaxies and ultimately the universe and how we came to be here on Earth today. We combine uh, cutting-edge techniques in both observational and theoretical astrophysics with advanced computational astrophysics techniques and technology development. And all of those combined together is a very important catalyst to answer some of the biggest questions about the universe. You can't just use one of those techniques to get a complete picture. And of course, as Jonathan mentioned, we work in this very exciting interdisciplinary space at the University of Bath, which was one of the things that attracted me here. The fact that it's so exciting and easy to work with colleagues in physics and engineering maths and computer science. And in fact, there are some colleagues from physics who are actually developing some technology, um, both in photonics um, and in space technology. So a quick whirlwind tour of the universe. In the top corner, you can see a fairly ordinary, boring G-type main sequence star. That's how, what an astronomer would call it. It's actually our sun, and of course, it's fairly important to life. Uh, this actually shows a, a period when it's very active, and it's blasting off the parts of its, its, its corona. Those are actually driven by magnetic fields, and they actually impact our Earth and can sometimes disrupt things like Saturn. Uh, technology above our, our, above our uh, planet. Um, the Pleiades star cluster is a nearby uh, cluster of stars. It might, you might see it on the night sky as 
a little saucepan, if you look up in the dark sky. And if we go a little bit further out, if we were able to fly in a spacecraft above our own Milky Way galaxy, this would be what we would, we would see. And in fact, we live about uh, two-thirds of the way out on a quiet spiral arm. I think Douglas Adams once said something famous about that. And there are about 100 to 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. If we now zoom out and we look at a, a patch of the sky, this is the deepest photograph ever taken of the night sky. It was taken with the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a, a satellite that orbits above the Earth. And it stared at this patch of sky for literally weeks, gathering all of the light coming from that area. Uh, there are actually about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So you can do the maths and see how many stars there are, how many planets there might be. And I, just to answer the question that you'll all ask, and how many aliens there might be. It always ends with the aliens. And of course, one of the main tools we have is light. We can't actually bring samples of galaxies and stars back to our laboratory to study. We can't fly out and measure the temperature of a star, but we understand the laws of physics. We understand atomic physics, we understand light, we understand how light is produced. And we're actually working in this field at a very exciting point in, in human history. So Galileo was the first person really to be an early adopter of technology. He used the first te telescope of his day, and he used that to see planet, you know, the planet Jupiter and moons orbiting around a, another world. And that, of course, got him into terrible trouble with the church. But what he was doing was harnessing light from a distant body in his universe. We can now go much further out, but we cover the entire electromagnetic spectrum. We use satellites above the Earth to gather the highest energy cosmic um, rays of, of light, gamma rays and x-rays. Fortunately, they do not penetrate through the Earth's atmosphere, so we're, we're not extinct like the dinosaurs. Um, visible light does reach down. We tend to have our telescopes on the top of mountains where the sky is very clear. And then right down to the ground where we have radio telescopes that we can connect in giant networks to look at long wavelength radiation. And so if we use our telescopes to look at a galaxy, this is the typical view we see. This is, a, as I say, a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way. It's a pretty picture. You can see all the, the colors there. The colors start to give us some physical information. I can tell you whether there's oxygen in this galaxy or there's hydrogen, the fuel for the stars. The fuel for the stars um, and, and in the stars, the stars are actually burning through nuclear fusion, the way our sun is burning and will, will continue to burn for billions of years. And so we call this thermal radiation. This is light coming from stars burning, and this is the the typical picture you get for most galaxies. You might see some dust that blocks the starlight. You might see some dust that's heated up and will re-radiate in the infrared. If I now put a galaxy with a black hole uh, in front of you, you'll see quite a different picture. This again is still the starlight, so it's a bulge or a, a sphere of stars, very ancient stars. This galaxy has cannibalized a Milky Way-like galaxy, and that dusty patch across the middle is literally just dust blocking your view of the stars. But at the center is a supermassive black hole. And the reason that we know this is not because we can see through that dust and gas, but because if we now look in the radio part of the spectrum, we see this. We use networks of radio telescopes, and what we're seeing here in false color is a plasma. These are very highly energetically charged particles, electrons and protons, and they're actually being spewed out of the center of this galaxy. These are the largest continuous fluid flows we know in the universe, and they're produced by, by very energetic processes. Stars cannot do this. This is the reason that I'm a physicist and not an artist. Uh, this is as good as it gets in terms of my drawing skills, but it gives you the idea. So what we're trying to do is understand the central engine, the black hole-driven central engine that is in, under the bonnet by understanding the exhaust material that comes out of the active galaxy. And this was really a seminal discovery in the 1970s and the birth of radio astronomy as we know it today when it was discovered that it was black holes that were powering these things. And I really call this cosmic indigestion because this is the most energetic way to extract material. So you have a black hole at the center, you harness that with a, a magnetic field, and you extract the material off into space.
So I've mentioned black holes, but I haven't actually told you what they are. Well, they were actually predicted to exist over 100 years ago. And here we have Albert Einstein and his colleague, Emmy Nerva, um, who's an eminent mathematician and who really laid the foundations of modern physics. Unfortunately, in, in those days, she's at the University of Göttingen because she was a woman she couldn't be paid. Um, so she, she lectured and she did her research uh, for, for no pay. And it was really her understanding of symmetries that helped Albert Einstein to really formulate his laws of general relativity. This is uh, Albert Einstein's equation. Um, so on the left-hand side, it basically says that space-time tells matter and light how to move. And on the right-hand side, matter and energy tell space-time how to bend. And that's really all you need to know about general relativity. <laughs> of course, it looks simple, but it's 10 independent second-order nonlinear partial differential equations. So I thought for the rest of the evening, we'd just go through those equations. Okay? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe after a little more wine. The importance of this equation can't be overstated, and it lies at the heart of many of our modern technologies, our sat-nav technology, a multi-billion dollar global um, precision agriculture industry. But it was this very esoteric, curiosity-driven research that has got us to where we are today. There were three, and only three, still only three known exact analytical solutions to these equations. One predicted the expansion of the universe, which we've proven to be true experimentally, and that was a Nobel Prize-winning discovery. The second predicted the existence of black holes, and that idea languished in the mathematical literature for many decades as a theoretical construct. And the third was a prediction of gravitational waves or gravitational ripples, so literally the ripples in space-time when black holes collide. And last month, the Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of those. So I think as a species, um, this is actually quite remarkable that we've been able to do this. So the take-home message for what a black hole is, it's really a region of space inside which the pull of gravity is so great nothing can escape, not even light. And again, as I say, it was very esoteric mathematically, but now if you speak to any astronomer, we'll tell you about all the different flavors of black holes that we know about. Stellar mass black holes that are a few times the mass of our sun and a few miles across that we think are produced in the death throes of massive stars when they reach the end of their lives. Supermassive black holes at the other extreme are a million to a billion times the mass of our own sun. They lie at the heart of all massive galaxies. They're about the size of the solar system, and we think they're very important for the formation and evolution of galaxies. And we now think we've found the medium-sized ones, the missing link, and we don't know what produces those. So, of course, the big question is, if you can't see black holes, how do you know they're there? Well, you can look at the symptoms, the cosmic indigestion, but this is a much more direct way of doing this. These are actual photographs taken in infrared light of stars at the center of our own Milky Way galaxies, real stars, and you'll see the one that gets pulled around by the black hole. I put a cross there just to help you. That's a real black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy pulling a star around the corner with its gravitational force. The black hole at the center of our own galaxy is just over 3 million times the mass of our sun, or 6 times 10 with 33 zeros after it tons. That's pretty massive. Uh, 15 billion billion suns per cubic light year. There's nothing else that can be other than a black hole. And as I say, we think that black holes are really the core of where, where galaxies come from. But we don't know whether galaxies grow black holes or black holes seed, uh, seed galaxies. That's a big frontier of our research, and it's one that Dr. Karen Vilforth is focusing on here at the University of Bath. If we go to faster timescales now and smaller black holes, because obviously galaxies take millions of years to evolve, and therefore we have to look at millions of galaxies. We can't just sit and watch one and see what will happen. If we go to stellar mass black holes, things happen much more quickly. And in the top left-hand corner, if you watch, you will see a black hole being born. Bang. And it took about three seconds for that very bright flash of high-energy gamma rays to reach our detectors. And it swamps the whole of the detector responses. They're the brightest things in the sky momentarily. These are gamma ray bursts. And we now know that they're also the most distant objects in the universe. You can see we like superlatives in astrophysics. 
We think they're produced by the merger of compact objects like neutron stars and black holes or the death throes of massive stars. They blast off their outer regions and their cores collapse to form black holes. And in the process, very similar to the supermassive black holes, they launch these beams. And if a beam points towards Earth, very much like a laser pointer, we will see one of these gamma ray flashes. And we detect about 200 of these a year in real time. Real time is the real key here because these things are literally gone in seconds and they never repeat. They're literally a once-in-a-lifetime uh, discovery. So what my group have spent the last 10 years doing is really building up the robotic engineering and the autonomous algorithms to search for these things on the night sky. And in particular, we do this in the visible bands with robotic telescopes around the world. We take the discovery from the satellite in real time and we start to take data, photographs of the sky, and our algorithms look for these uh, new things that have appeared on the sky in real time. And just to give you a flavor of how very competitive this field is. The very first time I did this, I was on, on duty with my postdocs and students. Um, they were actually all at conferences, and I was on my own. I was just telling my, my colleagues in the taxi on the way here tonight. I sent a circular out to 1,002 astronomers around the world to say, I have found the optical counterpart to one of these gamma ray flashes. I realized I got the date wrong by one day because the discovery had been made in Hawaii, and I was in UK time. I sent a retraction for the date and a correction. And as I sit, hit send, I got an email from a colleague in Hawaii saying, you got the day wrong. <laughs> and worse than that, I wrote back and said, I know, but I've already sent the retraction. And the key is, I would have had to have cited him in the retraction if I hadn't sent it fast enough. It is a very competitive field. We've calmed down a little bit now, and we're doing exciting science. We've now discovered over 230 black holes. Often feels that we do this on a Friday night and a Sunday morning. But the really big physical question that we want to ask is what, what powers the most explo energetic explosions in the universe? And just a little cautionary tale to any students in the audience, if you're ever in a, a, a seminar and you're feeling a bit sleepy, I know you work hard, you have a nap, at the end of the seminar, particularly if it's physics-based, put your hand up, scratch your head and say, well, what about the magnetic fields? Nine times out of ten, particularly if it's an astrophysics talk, the speaker will say, oh, you know, you've, you've got me. That's incredibly clever. You've seen through my talk. We've neglected the magnetic fields because they're just too hard. Don't ever do that in one of our talks because that's what we work on. And the point about magnetic fields is we do not know the cosmic origin of magnetic fields yet. And that's one of the other frontier topics in astrophysics. We don't know where they come from. We don't know their origin. And we're trying to find out their role and their importance. And in fact, by the, the new sorts of technology that we're developing, particularly to measure a very special property of the light that comes from these, a thing called polarization, it's the one way we can actually access distant magnetic fields in objects that will always look like little spots on our photographs. And we've now made the first discoveries of polarized light from these exploding stars. And we've proven that large-scale, spiral-ordered magnetic fields are actually powering these explosions and focusing these beams of plasma. Um, and those papers are published in journals like Nature. We're building new technology at Bath now to scale that up. And the other really big, exciting realm that has literally opened up in the last year or two is the discovery of gravitational waves. And this is done by this phenomenal technology where we have very, very long tunnels, literally four-kilometer-long tunnels, so-called interferometers, two pairs of tunnels at 90 degrees to one another. Um, and this goes to the heart of some of the, the research that gets done at Bath in the physics department around photonics and photonic fibers. Light is literally passed along these tubes to the end. It hits a mirror. It comes back and we just measure how long it takes. And if it goes out in the same time and it comes back in the same time, you know the arm hasn't moved. If a gravitational wave or a ripple in space-time comes through you, which is happening right now, you get squished a little bit, you get stretched a little bit, and that happens. If the arm is slightly short or slightly long, we know a gravitational wave has passed. 
So this is the, the audience participation part. If two black holes spiral together or a neutron star and a black hole, what we get is they spin together over millions of years, then they get faster and faster and faster, and right at the end, bang, they collide, and those ripples go out into space-time. They spend millions of years traveling through the universe, and they come to our interferometers. So this is a theoretical or a computer simulation of that chirp signal. So I'll let you hear the easy one, and this is the, the pure signal first. Bang, they've collided. You're now listening to uh, simulated data with noise added. And of course, we do this mathematically. We don't do it with our ears. But it's, close your eyes and see if you can hear that chirp signal under the noise. We'll just try not to make this too loud. Oh, I've given you the answer. I hope you closed your eyes. Hands up if you thought it was number one. Oh, good ears. Hands up for number two. All right. Oh, one at the back. Okay. All right. That was definitely number three, and I already gave you the answer. Here's a harder one. These are two black holes merging, and the signal it has quite a different characteristic. So that's more high-pitched. Here it is with the noise. Hands up. Any takers? Anybody for number two? You can do this online. It's a really hard game, and the kids will beat you. Three. Hands up if you didn't hear it in number three. Yeah, it's quite hard. You do the online game. It's very, very cute. You get to level three, you lose all your lives. I've not got past level three. <laughs> this is the real one. That's the real signal. This is it just raised to make it easier for you to hear. That is the first discovery of two real black holes in the real universe merging together and producing gravitational waves that were detected in 2014. I just still find that completely overwhelming. This summer, actually on my birthday, which was even more exciting, a new discovery was made. Not black holes merging, which were actually a surprise for the gravitational wave community, but two neutron stars. A neutron star is a very dense star. It hasn't quite been dense enough to make a black hole, one sugar cube of which uh, weighs about the same as Mount Everest, and that's how dense a neutron star is. I won't play this because it actually takes 30 seconds. It takes really, really long, and then you get the chirp at the end, but that's just a pictorial version of it. And so what was really exciting was for the first time the gravitational waves were discovered and the entire global electromagnetic community were able to pinpoint a flash of light across the electromagnetic spectrum in a galaxy far, far away. This is not just like looking for a needle in a haystack. This is like trying to find the haystack before you look for the needle. And it was very exciting. As I say, it was a global campaign. You can see the uh, unassuming little spot here. Two neutron stars merged together. We actually don't know what it produced. Well, the money's out on whether it's a black hole or a denser star. Um, we led a number of papers from the University of Bath. You can speak to my colleague, Dr. Stein Wutz, who's our theoretical, I'm sorry, um, Hendrik van Erten, who's our theoretical uh, computational astrophysicist. And he was actually did some seminal work in actually showing that this was what happened in space by looking at the X-ray light and doing the computer simulations of it. This is what we think happened. Two neutron stars spinning together 130 million years ago. And eventually, they got close enough to touch. They spun faster and faster, giving out um, gravitational waves. And eventually, they collided. They produced a gamma ray first, one of these energetic plumes, which pointed towards us at Earth, and we saw the flash with our satellites. Then there's an explosion inside, and it produces gold and platinum and all the heavy elements that we have in us here on Earth. That's where your, your rings have come from. 
absolutely mind-boggling. We have a birth of new science. This is a phenomenally exciting time. As I say, all of the technology comes together. We did not expect to make that, those sorts of discoveries in one object in one month for about the next 10 to 15 years. So it's, it's a game changer. We're combining all of these electromagnetic signals also with detectors like uh, detectors that look for exotic particles like neutrinos. These detectors are actually photo flash tubes that are dug in the ice in the South Pole. And when we put all of these together, we'll have a completely new view of the universe and I hope you'll come to our booth to hear more. Thank you. Future events will be publicised by Alumni Relations at the University of Bath, so make sure to follow us on our alumni Facebook at facebook.com forward slash bath.alumni.community and Twitter at Uni of Bath Alumni. Thanks for listening.